This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 53rd episode of the Quarterman Podcast, I'm looking at Fantastic Four Annual 20 from Marvel Comics cover dated 1987. But first, a little feedback. On the Turok and Boom and Bust episodes, David Gutierrez said very nice things about both me and Shag. I just wanted to give David a shout-out on that. Noel Thingval, from the Masters of Carpentry, also commented on Turok, I have yet to read much Valiant beyond their massive 1992 crossover event Unity. Rich, epic story, surprisingly easy to follow given it's dumping you right in the middle of every book in the line. Jim Shooter was still in charge at the time, and say what you will about the dude as a chief, or as a person, he really knew how to intricately craft a story and a universe. Regarding what one of your co-hosts mentioned, I was also put off from their books when I was younger due entirely to the coloring, which always looked like colored pencils to me and just didn't line up with what other comics were doing at the time. I kind of like the faded, rustic look now, Definitely that's why it didn't pop up alongside others on the shelves at the time. Thanks, Noel. Appreciate that feedback. And I did get some responses from listeners about what they, well, what you guys, got at Free Comic Book Day. Jason Marcinet picked up two of the issues that I covered, Avengers and Captain Canuck. I really liked Avengers, and I really agree with you on Captain Canuck. And that's probably saying enough about that. Ed Moore, from the Mighty Thorcast, and from episode 50 of this very show, wrote in, I would recommend the legendary books coming out of Dynamite for that steampunk aesthetic, if you're into that. Well, Ed, I will take that under advisement. Thank you. Daniel Butcher, of the Comic Book Time Machine, and Welcome to Level 7 podcast, said that he picked up Secret War Zero, and I found it fine, but not enough to get me into the miniseries. At least, not yet. Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive wrote in, Just listened to your free Comic Book Day 2015 episode, and I have to give you a thumbs up for a well-spent free Comic Book Day. And yes, my subject line is an actual conversation I had at Free Comic Book Day a few years ago. Oh, Right, I forgot that. His subject line was, How much are these free comics? Uh, They're free. Oh. Yeah. Well, Luke was out of town for free comics this year, but he's not going to let a little thing like that keep him from telling a story. This used to be a relatively low-key deal here in the upstate of South Carolina. The two LCSs, Borderlands and Richards, are on the same street, two, three blocks away from each other. My friends and I are primarily loyal to Borderlands, so we'd always hit that one first. And it was a quiet event. We'd get our freebies, browse a bit on the sale items, and then go. Richards was typically more of a big deal. 
he would have local artists and cosplayers there, and at least once, he had a giant inflatable gorilla. Oh, a DC fan, I take it. But even then, the crowds were never so bad, even given the smaller footprint of the store. But a few years ago, that changed. The owner of Borderlands is what some might call an entrepreneur, what some might call a madman. But Free Comic Book Day became an event. Discounts, door prizes, raffles, superhero-themed cakes, radio commercials, print media, everything. And suddenly, the little Free Comic Book Day pop-in became a line-out-of-the-door commitment. I'm thrilled that he's able to get that many more people into the store, and I hope it helps him on the bottom line, but it does make my life slightly more inconvenient, and isn't that the most important thing? Yes, Luke, I believe that is the most important thing. And of course, that story is basically what happened to me and to Russell Burbage this year, where the one event store had such a long line outside, and I just moved on. Luke continues, As for the books you covered... The Avengers book doesn't really appeal to me. I was a loyal Avenger reader for years, dating back to the 90s. But it reached a point in the mid-2000s that being an Avenger didn't mean anything anymore. The comings and goings, the memberships of the team, that was an afterthought. And I, I think that's a totally fair point, Luke. I haven't picked up an Avengers book in years, decades maybe, So when I picked up this one and saw, oh, it was a cool lineup, it it didn't bother me like it would, I think, a more loyal reader like someone like yourself. I I can totally see that. He also pointed out that the Captain Canuck back matter that annoyed me so much is not all that uncommon for a free comic book day book. He had the same experience with Sonic the Hedgehog a few years back. He did think that the Doctor Who format made sense with short stories relating to each of the ongoing series that they have, casting a wide net for Whovians. Luke uh, did continue. I'm not familiar with steampunk Goldilocks, although just typing that makes me smile. The book did seem superficially similar to some of the books Xenoscope publishes. The only title of theirs I buy is Charmed, which is my wife's favorite show, and the only comic she reads on a regular basis It's something for us to share. You don't have to make excuses, Luke. That's okay. No judgment here. But that title is filled with ads every month for featuring fairy tale characters and bright colored, you know, good girl art pinup poses, not unlike the cover to Steampunk Goldilocks. Your description of the title did sound like fun, so if I can find a copy at the store, I'll give it a read. Glad to hear your free comic book day adventure was a success and you got some good 25 cents or less comics for your collection. Luke. Always great to hear from you, Luke. Keep them stomping. We also heard from Jason Trenner, a.k.a. Fanboy Ms. Prime, about Free Comic Book Day. And spoilers for this email, yes, he does mention Transformers. Greetings, Professor. Love the review of the various books. I have to admit the only one I got was the Avengers Inhumans one. And keep in mind that I'm an Akron, so I hope you aren't offended by me asking, what is a Buckeye Shake? Well, Jason and others who are just too embarrassed to ask, Buckeyes are chocolate-coated peanut butter candies that resemble the Buckeye, the tree nut that is best known as the mascot for the Ohio State University sports teams, or as me and my colleagues refer to them, 
the other state university in Ohio. Anyway, a Buckeye shake is an extremely thick peanut butter and chocolate milkshake that, in the opinion of this unbiased journalist, is totes yummers. Jason also asked what the two books I was after for Free Comic Book Day that I missed. I'd mentioned there were sort of six books on my possible list. One was The Phantom, and the other was Lady Justice, which I thought would be a new story, but it was a reprint from the, the old Techno Comics days. And here it is. Also relating to last year's Free Comic Book Day, it still sucks that you missed IDW's G.I. Joe vs. the Transformers issue zero. That comic was the start of what is basically what would happen if some kids in the 80s played with all their action figures together after reading an older brother's fourth world comics. It was a total mass of insanity. Well, thanks, Jason. It is always good to hear from you. Ron Sadowski also picked up the Doctor Who book and added the book from the Honor Harrington series as well as The Phantom. Billy Hogan from the Superman Fan Podcast is a big fan of the Honor Harrington comics and I assume the Honor Harrington book series. And I I think I really need to check those out, both the novels and the comic books. Thanks for all the feedback, everyone. I'm going to take a break here, play a promo, and then we'll come back with a discussion of our issue for this episode. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? And we're back. Fantastic Four Annual number 20 had a cover price of $1.25, meaning I acquired this book at a very nice 80% discount. The cover by Ron Friends and Al Milgram shows the one true star of the FF's entire run. Green cape flowing in the breeze. As the title copy says, The Fate of Franklin Richards at the Hands of Dr. Doom. But the cover makes sense. I mean, this is an annual, a higher cover price. And if you want to convince readers to pay this extra high price, think about who you'd want to put on the cover. Clearly, the character best able to sell comics based on his immense popularity is the rightful ruler of the great nation of Latveria. Hail Doom! Now, this is an extra-sized issue, and so I'm going to try to keep this to a reasonable-length episode. I'm, I'm going to skip some of the side plots and minor characters and just focus on the, the important people. 
the key ongoing storyline. So I'm going to take my cue from the cover image in terms of separating who's important and who's not important. So you're not going to hear a lot in this episode about, um, who was it, Mr. Stretchy, Flamehead, that, that big ugly thing, and the ignored girl. We're going to focus on who matters. The story, titled Double Double, was scripted by Steve Englehart with art by Paul Neary and Tony DiZaniga. The story starts with Doom in all his glory, facing off against the five members of the Fantastic Four. Because Reed is supposedly a super genius, and counting is, I guess, overrated. Reed is shocked by what happened, I guess, at the end of issue 305. You want me to trust you with the life of my son? Johnny flies upstairs to find Franklin, or as they insist on calling him, Frank, sleeping on a couch where they had evidently left him unsupervised, because for Marvel's first family, the Richards are not the best parents ever. Johnny will stay there and watch after little Frank. Back in the lobby, Doom explains what's going on, telling the heartbreaking story of his mother, who was once a gypsy witch, or as Dave Elliott of the Fantastic Forecast once noted, solid nanny material for the Richards. For he has come to them not as the monarch of Latveria, but as a man. For sadly, his mother died and her soul ended up, well, in Mephisto's realm. Let's just put it that way. Every year, like the kind and good and devoted son that he is, Victor battles Mephisto for her soul. And every year, he has failed. This year, Doom is going with a different strategy, a humble strategy. He realizes he needs an ally. He realizes he needs Franklin. I know that your son can peer into the future in his dreams. And I know that he has seemingly beaten Mephisto with the power of his brain. Referring to issue 277. Reed says that there's no way he'll give Franklin over to Doom, because Doom didn't exactly treat Kristoff very well. I can only imagine that inside his metal face mask, Doom is chuckling about being called out as a bad parent by a Richards. Are you freaking kidding me? Doom promises to sacrifice his own life before letting any harm come to little Frank. Reed tells him to leave, and shortly thereafter, the building comes under attack by swarm bots. A couple of these swarm bots hook themselves together to form a flying robot, and it swooshes by and grabs baby Frank. Johnny calls Doom Pond Scum, but he is unable to reach Doom's waiting ship before the robot deposits little Frank inside. The FF have been holding Kristoff as a prisoner for quite some time now, and now Doom has returned the favor. Reed's frustration at losing Frank bubbles over into anger against Ben. If you'd picked a fourth member by now, Sue and I could devote our full attention to Frank. Because, you know, not realizing that Crystal is now on the team, making five, Sue could have gone off with Franklin. But again, solid parenting decisions do not automatically develop after being bathed by cosmic rays. Sue takes charge and has Ben ready the fantastic jet. The others prepare, leaving Sue and Reed alone in a shocking moment of self-awareness. Decades in the making, Reed asks, 
God help me, what kind of father am I? Franklin is sleeping in the doomship, but the mental dampeners that the doctor installed keep his dream cell from going anywhere. After Frank awakens, he and Doom have an interesting conversation about children and parents, and Doom says he loves his mother, but she was taken by Mephisto, and now he wants to get her back. Frank knows Mephisto is a bad man, so he is going to help Doom do just that. After the Fantastic Five head off in the Fantastic Five jet, that robot that nabbed Frank earlier comes back to life in the HQ. He follows a whistle to the FF's dungeon and finds Kristoff, who thinks he's Dr. Doom. It's a long story. You may be familiar with it, but if you're not, just go with me. I also just want to point out that the Fantastic Five have a dungeon. At this point, the team's headquarters is at Four Freedoms Plaza, and evidently none of those freedoms involve jury trials and due process and not having dungeons at your office. Kristoff orders the robot to let him out, which he does. Another of Reed's tortured playthings asks to be let out from the cell next door. Never, Kristoff says. Where Doom walks, he walks alone. And he heads off with the robot, which I suppose in some definitions would count as walking alone, but... The real Doom lands in Doomstadt, and the people are rightly rejoicing at his return. Welcome to my kingdom. Is it not the very stuff of the Brothers Grimm? This confuses little Frank. My uncle is Benjamin Grimm. Are you talking about him? Elsewhere in Latveria, that robot with Kristoff lands, and ah, there is the house I seek. He goes inside, accesses a cool rotating shelf into a mysterious room of secrecy. Of course, a doombot is waiting, and Kristoff tells the robot that some madman has invaded Latveria. Well, if he means Reed, then I'm totally in agreement. If he means Doom, I have to quibble. Kristoff says it's time for the imposter to match wits with the real Doom. So he and the Doombot underground tunnel themselves right out of there. The FF enter the cottage because even though Kristoff is the fake Doom, Reed can't keep up with even a fake Doom. The team heads through the same tunnel. Kristoff worries a bit about the FF. I must rearm the last device to make certain that they cannot follow. But then he does come F to F with the FF. Kristoff power beams the F5 away from him. Only one stretchy neck makes it past, and the head at the end of that neck tells Kristoff that they all have the same goal, to get the other Doom, or as we know him, the real Doom. Of course, by calling him Kristoff... Reed may have not gotten on the kid's good side, but you know, he's a super genius. The real Doom is in front of some smoldering, magical cauldron of mysticism. His servant Boris informs him of the intruders in the catacombs. Of course, Doom knows who the intruders are because he's Doom, but he's too smart to say anything in front of young ears. He tells little Frank that he's ready, and no pressure, Frank, but the life of Doom's mom is in your hands. Doom calls upon Mephisto, whose presence fills the room with magic smoke and stuff. Doom tells Mephisto he is well prepared for their battle, holding little Frank up in front of him, which 
I admit is not really a position of strength. Doom offers a trade. The soul of Franklin Richards for the end of Peter Parker's marriage. Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong deal. I flipped the book over and saw an ad for the wedding album issue, and I just jumped ahead a few decades in my chronology. Anyway, back to this deal. Little Frank's soul for his mother's soul. He didn't really need Franklin's powers, after all, because at his core, Franklin is really just another troublemaking Richards. Mephisto admits that he has only kept Doom's mother's soul to torment Doom, so he's intrigued by the prospect of a deal. Kristoff and a bunch of Doombots burst in, and Kristoff, in some Doomish like armor, has the audacity to zap Doom. Now, at this point, the Doombots are mightily confused, because both Dooms have the same brainwave patterns. They certainly know that Kristoff is not the real Doom, but they still can't quite figure out what's going on. Mephisto is confused, too, so he just grabs Franklin and figures, eh, why not keep both souls? So Mephisto disappears back to his realm, but Reed super-stretches himself out, and he makes it through the portal just in time to join Mephisto. In Hell, Reed offers Mephisto another deal. This is like Hell's version of Shark Tank. No, wait. Shark Tank is actually Hell's version of Shark Tank. If you want a soul, take mine, Reed says. But Mephisto is sticking with his plan to take all the souls, and he zaps Reed unconscious. Except that he's not unconscious, he's just faking, and he super stretches his arm over to nab little Frank. Reed has a mental block remover device thing in his hand, and he activates it. And Franklin's eyes glow like an angry Superman. And he eye zaps Mephisto. Mephisto is not a fan of this cursed child, and he sends them away. I can countenance no more. So Reed and Franklin reappear at Doom's place, and Doom exercises some righteous anger at little Frank for not bringing back Doom's mama from hell. Franklin's poor upbringing appears here as he threatens to send Doom to hell, calling him a bad man and making other unsupported and wild claims. Reed, fortunately, does step in at this point. The Doombots hear the real Doom express disappointment and emotions over his mother, and they figure that that can't be the real Doom because that guy is usually a stone-cold son of a gun. So they attack the real Doom. Now, Doom destroys four of the Doombots in just one panel, but he admits that he probably can't fight the hundreds of Doombots in the castle. So he engages in a reasonable strategic retreat, leaving Kristoff temporarily in charge. But Doom warns him, the war twixt you and me has just begun. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. 
Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. And we're back. Thanks go out to Ed Moore for selecting this issue. Actually, he just selected a number 1 through 317 on a Facebook post when I asked on the Facebook page for listeners to pick a number 1 through 317. Then I randomized a selection of the people who posted numbers, and Ed Moore's pick came up, and that row of the Excel spreadsheet corresponded to FF Annual 20. So thanks to Ed, that of course is the head of Teal Productions, and, and you can get his podcasts there or through the comic book noise feed. Uh, the Mighty Thorcast, The Emerald Archer, Ronan Rabbit, Lords of Order. I think there are probably more than that. Of course, the reason this comic was in the Quarterbin database at all was because Dr. Doom is on the cover. I have about two dozen FF issues in the database but it's certainly not because of the cursed Reed Richards and his dysfunctional family. The star of this series is, of course, President for Life Victor I of Latveria. The presence of Doctor Doom on covers also explains the issues of Dazzler, Silver Sable, West Coast Avengers, and Punisher that are in the Quarterbin database. So, of course, I'm predisposed to like this issue but not just for the obvious Doom-centric reasons in general. It's not just that Doom is featured in the story, but I love this backstory of the annual fight for his mother's soul. I know that I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but this annual duel for the mom's soul was the jumping-off point for my all-time favorite comic story, the Doom Quest issues of Iron Man. Those issues appeared in Iron Man 149 and 150, and then eight years later, sequel issues were published in 249 and 250. And because that wasn't enough, the story had enough resonance to generate a four-issue mini called Legacy of Doom well over a decade after that. So it's eight issues, published over nearly 25 years, that tell this terrific story with an epic scope, and it all goes back to this annual magical battle between Doom and Mephisto. From the very early days, FF Annual 2, as a matter of fact, the origin the origin of Doom's story from Lee and Kirby, his mother plays an important role in the character development. It comes across often as a joke, and I don't mean it that way, but Doom's stories are best when he's not just a stereotypical villain driven by a negative emotion, but when he's portrayed more sympathetically. And even in this case, I think he is because of this motivation for the mother. I put it in, at worst, the sympathetic villain category. And of course, I'm biased and would argue that this shows him to be even more of an anti-hero. I think that this is when he's written at his best, when he's written with these these noble ideals, these noble good intentions, and, and that's what motivates him. So this annual, pulling on that plot thread, 
that has such pleasant associations for me was guaranteed to work. And that particular plot element was a surprise. The, the cover just has Doom holding Frank. There's not any mention of Mephisto, the mother, anything. Fortunately, there was no reference to the rest of the Richardses, the Annoying Four, or whatever they're called. Now, generally speaking, when I pick books up for the podcast, they go straight into the Quarterman Long Box. No reading, no passing go, no collecting $200. Some of the books I've read before, sure, but it's been a while. And I want the reading for the podcast to be sort of fresh, to be unencumbered by another recent reading. So when I was going through this one, I had no idea that this would tie in to the storyline of Doom's Mother. So needless to say, pleasantly surprised by that. And any negatives I could possibly say about the story are pretty much canceled out by that. Do have a few individual things to note uh, about the story, about the issue. I thought the Brothers Grimm, Ben Grimm joke was pretty funny. Franklin has got to be a pretty tough character to write, I would think. He has crazy, powerful powers, but he's also just, I don't know, five years old, maybe? And they actually do a pretty good job of combining the uber-powered kid with trying to figure out, you know, who the bad men are and which of the bad men is the worst bad men. And that joke, the lack of comprehension of the Brothers Grimm, that attempt to try to fit that comment into his own experience base, I know someone named Grimm, I thought was really strong, really subtle writing. And, and Steve Englehart is not someone generally at the top of my list of comic book writers. But that bit was really quite good, I thought. He also does a good job of referencing current continuity, the current status quo on the team. Now, I joked about the team having five members, but this has actually been an ongoing subplot, finding replacements for Reed and Sue so they can finally care for Franklin full-time. Oh, sorry. I mean, Frank. Am I crazy? Or is he ever hardly referred to as Frank? I know I am not familiar with the FF issues that don't involve Doom, but to me, he is always Franklin Richards. Frank just sounds weird. But let me know if I'm way off base on that. Of course, this is fundamentally a family story, a family book, and so those family relationships, which can sometimes seem a little soap opera-y, are key aspects to the story. I skipped over a lot of the interpersonal, intra-family stuff to properly shine the light on the rightful ruler of Latveria. But those family dynamics, when they are written well, add a lot to the FF. And here, they were written pretty well. So The verdict on Fantastic Four Annual 20, uh, Doctor Doom fighting the Lord of Hell for the soul of his mother, as Stan Lee would say, Nuff said. And you know that I have a pretty basic formula going on with these books. It's an annual. Sorry. A giant-sized annual. And it took a pretty decent amount of time to read. And it was a pretty good read at that. And Doom. A definite quarter bin steal. I mentioned Dave Elliott and his fantastic forecast podcast earlier. He covered this story with a little too much focus on the Richards family for my taste, but 
That was back in October 2013 in Special Episode 20. So if you want more of a Fantastic Four-focused view of this story, check that out. I can't endorse that viewpoint, obviously, but I do feel a moral obligation to mention that another podcaster has covered this issue before and has done so adequately. Or you can check out Andy Leyland and Steve Lacey's coverage of this issue when they get to it on the Fantasticast in about the year 2021. That wraps up my coverage of Fantastic Four Annual 20, bringing episode 53 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 54, we begin a little series by looking at a book from the Amalgam line of books that came into being after the DC vs. Marvel event. Or was it Marvel vs. DC? Or was it both? We will get to the bottom of that, and I'll be joined by a guest. So come back next episode when Sean Engel and I will look at Doctor Strange Fate. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor Allen! <laughs>